give us a little idea of what's going on. Look at Daniel chapter 7. Listen to God's word. It says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel out of Egypt to this day, but have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, that I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, with uh, whom I command to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appoint judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Well, let me emphasize that a little bit differently. The Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up or raise up from your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, in accordance with all these things, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So a very interesting passage, and obviously full of prophecy. It's really all about prophecy, right? Uh, last week, though, I wanted to just, uh, I didn't quite get a chance to finish when you're dealing with David and the two aspects of worship as David was bringing the ark to Jerusalem and he did so in a way that he just prepared the ark in a way that was contrary to God's word. Uzzah died. Uh, David got angry, but after he got over it, he, uh, did things the right way. Then, uh, he's dancing before the Lord as they bring the ark into Jerusalem and Micah, his wife, was criticizing him for uh, evidently dressing down and not carrying himself like a king. And David, uh, in a sense, curses her uh, because she uh, he was doing this for the Lord, not to be seen of men. Right? And so I just wanted to make a, uh, a few observations before we kind of get into the bit of covenant. We saw that we are to worship and serve the Lord based on truth. First of all, he has revealed to us, uh, his memory told us, Samaritan woman, you, the day is coming and now is when you worship me in spirit and in truth. It is not enough to just do whatever we want to do. Some people think that just when you get emotional, that's the spirit, and that you're free to do whatever you want to do. Well, no, uh, it's always based upon the word of God, and that's the first thing that we, we cannot worship God, certainly from our heart, until we know the truth about God. 
We don't approach him any way we want to. He's deadly serious about taking him seriously, as we saw last week. On the other hand, we see David with spontaneous, heartfelt, emotional worship, which was the result of knowing uh, the Lord's word to us. David, when he focused on the truth of what God had revealed to him, he did things God's way, then he was free to be spontaneous, to, to let uh, the truth affect his heart and the way he worshiped him. And so there's, there's two aspects of worship, both, uh, I might say, the regulative and normative, or normative, uh, that we can, we are to uh, only do what the Bible tells us to, but I think that leaves us with a certain amount of flexibility in being able to express the things that we learn about God. We must be careful of demanding that people worship just the way we like to worship. That's always been, uh, you see this many times. Certain people, we have a way we worship, and the people see people who do it differently, and they do it well, they're not doing it the right way. And that's a very, uh, that's not a good thing at all. You have to be very careful about that. So, in thinking about that, especially that last part, then what we just talked about with David dancing, uh, before uh, the people as they brought the ark into the uh, to Jerusalem. Before he danced, <clears throat> clearly he read the word and obeyed and feared. There, there was before he danced, before and again and 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 it wrong being emotional. I, you know, I, I don't I don't mind seeing emotion. You know, when when you hear something good to express some sort of joy Amen, or whatever, those are good things. But before David got to the point where he could dance, we see him reading the Word of God. So where did he do that? Well, when he focused on the fact that, oh, I'm supposed to be, the, the priest is supposed to carry this ark, right? They had been put on a cart. That was what the world did. So once he reminded himself of the Word of God said, that caused him to fear, and now he's ready to be spontaneous. So, I think we just see something going on there. So we don't have to jettison all formality and decency that we, you know, there's nothing wrong with dressing appropriately for what we're doing. Uh, we, it doesn't mean we can't have nice things and nice building, uh, nice procedures or rituals, uh, however, whatever you want to call them. Rights, uh, those aren't bad words. They just can't, they can become problematic. But those things are okay. Um, but it does, it does mean um, it does not remind us that we are here to rejoice in glory in the Lord, not to entertain each other, not to be motivated by what man thinks, but uh, we, everything that we're doing is ultimately to uh, is an expression of our joy in the Lord. And so if our procedures, if our rights don't affect our heart, they're useless. So we want to be careful that we don't just make it about formal formalities but we're doing things to remind us, even our, our ordinance, we do that to speak to our heart. But there's a point, it's to, to speak truth to ourselves, to remind us of truth. And uh, we don't just do things based on flashy emotionalism, we, we do things to, that's why the songs that we sing, I don't mind emotional music, there's some that don't like emotional music, you know, whatever. I don't mind it, as long as it is appropriate and it speaks to the heart is that the words you know are correct right you know we might add that something is wrong if we can muster 
great enthusiasm for sports or politics or in some other relatively unimportant thing, but find what we're doing here uh, unexciting. And, and you know, it's not, we're not trying to, to generate any type of excitement necessarily, but if you don't find what we're doing emotional to the heart, it doesn't speak to you in some way, then something's wrong. So we don't always have to worship by exhibiting a lot of emotion, but something is wrong if we don't have some sort of emotion within. And we want to be careful of an attitude towards those who can get caught up in the things of the Lord while we sit back you know, and criticize. You know, obviously there are some who carry emotion way beyond what is helpful. But, let's be careful of criticizing people, you know, while we sit back and are dead, right? We don't want to, we don't want to do that either. That's just as bad. Well, maybe not just as bad, but not, not good. And as he said, Michael, Produces no fruit with her attitude. She's terse, as it were. She bears no children. And, and one wonders, why is she up watching all this stuff from the window? And why is she down there with the women that she was saying, you know, disrespect David? You know, you know the first thing you'd wonder is, well, why were not you down there with those women to start with? You know, why are you up here? Why aren't you taking part in all this? And so it just shows an attitude that we want to make sure that we don't um, follow, you know, follow into that example. So we always want to have balance in worship. We are rejoiced in the Lord, our God, but we do so with respect and fear. We are boldly approaching the throne with confidence, yet we want to maintain a broken and contrite spirit. And uh, I, I just think there's this... this and read through that chapter, some of those things are brought out and very important for us to consider, right? So the Davidic Covenant, Second Samuel chapter 7, we come to the uh, one of the more well-known portions of Scripture where the Lord plainly states that the Messiah, this greater Son, obviously, as we read that, it should be pretty apparent that he is, in one sense, speaking about Solomon, Someone who's going to come forth from David, who would be a man of peace. We'll talk about that in a moment. Who built him a temple and so forth. We know that Solomon did eventually commit iniquity and uh, the Lord chastened him for that. It's clearly talking about Solomon, but as you're reading this, you can't help but think, oh, wait just a minute. This sounds a lot like somebody else. David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would bring, who would triumph over his enemy. And, and establish peace and would build a house, right? And so uh, that's really what the Lord is speaking of in the Davidic covenant. From your uh, loins, there's going to be someone who is going to come and is going to establish a kingdom. Two things. Usually we think about the Davidic covenant as the kingdom, the promise of a kingdom, which is certainly true. But that's not the only thing that he spoke of here, right? I'm going to also, by the way, you're, you're, you're trying to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And yes, the, 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 the temple that Solomon built was a fulfillment of that, but that really wasn't really what the Lord was getting at, right? This greater son is going to build a house. The true temple, the ultimate temple, the ultimate dwelling place. And so those two things are involved in the Davidic covenant. And so while David is concerned with building a permanent house for the ark, 
And it sounds like the Lord is kind of criticizing you. Saying, I never asked for any of that. I haven't had a permanent house ever since he came out of the wilderness. I have never asked for that. And, and I don't think he's David's wrong and want to do that. Otherwise, the Lord would have had Solomon do it, right? But he's emphasizing the fact that um, it, it's not all that important because I don't need a place to go. Uh, and, and I don't need a building as it were, a physical building as well. So I haven't asked for that. Now, he was going to allow one to be built. Uh, you know, of course, he had dwelt in the tabernacle to some degree, obviously, and, and would later the Solomon's temple. But I think the reason he's kind of downplaying that is because that's the, a house made with hands is not the point. It was, those things look forward to the kingdom of God, which is the church. The, the bride of Christ, the dwelling place of God. And so that's ultimately what um, the Lord is uh, referring to in these passages. In fact, you know, so uh, we, we, we know that in the scriptures there is a progression of this um, understanding the doctrine of the house of God in the temple. You have the tabernacle that progressed to Solomon's temple. Uh, it was, of course, torn down, but rebuilt. In Jesus' day, it was Herod's temple, as it were. But that, of course, was destroyed finally, uh, forever, because uh, he, those things only pointed forward to, first of all, Jesus came down, that Jesus is the dwelling place, the very dwelling place of God. He's that third uh, temple that is in Scripture, and then. As we are joined to him, he is building up a living temple, a, a, a building of living stones, Peter, Peter says. So, so that, that's the final uh, look. Well, I'll think of this a little bit further than that. There's a sense in which, as an individual, we know that we are the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. But then corporately, the, 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 the bride of Christ is, you know, it's not just me, it is, it is all the people of God. Uh, and so that's ultimately going to be the dwelling place of God and he dwells in his people and he builds his kingdom. So it's kind of the progression that we're seeing in these things. And so while the Lord tells them that the earthen temple isn't the ultimate house he's looking for, he also states that David will not be allowed to build it because David was a man most uh, mostly of bloodshed and his son, what he had gained peace, his son was going to be uh, able to rule in peace, and that and he's want, he wants him to build the, the temple. And he, uh, if you go over to First Chronicles chapter twenty-two, again, when you read through these, it's always good to read the parallel if there is one of the chronicles because they always add some extra information. Let's just read verses six through ten and see here what else we need. When he, then he called for Solomon his son, this is David, and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, now this was obviously was a few years later when Solomon was, David was getting ready to die. My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. 
for his name shall be called Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne for, in Israel forever. So he will just carry on the things promised to David. Now, I, you know, I suppose there's been a lot of speculation as to why that David happened to have shed, you know, had to, you know, it was not a sin that David was a man of war. He had to, right? That was his job. Why the Lord said, no, not you, but Solomon. Uh, my feeling is that the reason that the Lord makes this distinction is to, uh, again, point to the fact that there had to be two stages before this house could be built, something had to happen. First of all, uh, God's people's enemies, the Lord's enemies, had to be defeated. Then, once that took place, it was okay for the house to be built. And if, again, if you think about Jesus Christ, what had to happen first? Jesus came and he had to die. He had to defeat Satan. He had to defeat sin. And once he did that, he was raised. And it says that he ascended to heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's at rest. He's finished his work. His work is done. And now he's at rest. And so Solomon represents the imperialist. At least it's a great illustration of Christ at rest. And what is Christ at rest doing? He's building the kingdom. He's building his church. His dwelling place of God, right? So, you know, at least that's what I, that's a lesson that I think we learn in, in all that. Another thing we see here is that while David has a godly desire to build a house, the Lord makes it clear that he will build it when he is ready and it will be done his way, which is part of the problem. You know, David here, in a sense, has jumped the gun and I think one reason the Lord kind of puts a break on all this is saying, okay, look, the, 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 the building the house is my job. Now, he's going to use Solomon and, 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 and if you read uh, earlier there in First Chronicles, David uh, spends a lot of his years getting all the simple material together. So Solomon basically does all he has to do is just uh, have something to put together, right? He's going to use people to do it. But uh, he, he says, no, wait just a minute. I will build you a house. It's really about what I'm going to do. It. And uh, so the Lord uh, kind of reminds us about that. So we read what God is going to do throughout the passage uh, here in first, uh, Second Samuel 7. Not what David is going to do. And so it, it's just a great reminder that salvation is of the Lord. He, he uses us to preach the gospel. But at the end of the day, God, uh, as, as Paul says, uh, God, we water, but God gives the increase. Right? <clears throat> so Solomon will build a house, but it's clear that this is the type of the house that Jesus will build, not man. And in fact, uh, someone pointed out, I thought it was pretty good too, that uh, First Samuel, Second Samuel is filled up to this point. It's been, it's been filled with people assuming things, that, and, and they have to be they have to learn differently because they they take advantage of their own hand in some way. They had to learn their lesson. It began with Samuel, or excuse me, Eli, seeing Hannah pray, assuming that she's drunk, when in fact she was not. Later, Samuel sees Jesse's sons strong and 
and, uh, and, and warlike and assuming there to be king, but no, it was David, right? Um, David assumes that uh, it's okay to kill Nabal, and uh, his wife had to uh, correct him about that. The, his men, David's men, constantly seeing every opportunity, the opportunity to kill Saul. No. So, we mean well. Uh, and it kind of goes back to what we saw last week. David meant well to bring the ark into Israel, but he was just going about it the whole, the whole wrong way because he wasn't, he didn't stop and listen to what God had to say first. And as we come to, we, we meet here on Sundays to proclaim God's word so that we know how to live for the rest of the week. We don't just go let live life doing whatever we feel is the best thing to do without really taking God's word seriously. So it's just kind of an ongoing a lesson. Um, we can't fail to appreciate how the Lord describes himself here in the first part of the chapter. He said, I'm not God who dwells in a, in a, in a house made with hands in one place. I, I've been moved, I've lived in the since I've moved around. You know, he's an active God. I, I'd say he's a God who travels, but he's a God who's everywhere. So, you know, that's probably a better way to think about that, right? Because he's doing his will. He's not dependent upon man. And so, uh, the whole chapter is, is seen as God uh, showing grace by creating people uh, for um, himself. So God will condescend to man. He will as well that he'll do us good and uh, he's not a God who is who, who, who remains aloof. So when we read a verse like a verse like Philippians two six, it, it makes perfect sense. This is a God who is revealed in the Old Testament. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count the quality of God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself on becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God is not afraid to get his hands dirty. We use that terminology. He's a God who is active. He's a God who's doing things. He, he did not create the world. You know, we're not theistic evolutionists. We're God who's created the world. And he's going to see what man's going to do. That was kind of like deism. That was the deist, you know, back in the colonial days. That's kind of one of their things. They, they, they believe in God. But they, they wanted to see, you know, what, 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 God wanted to see what man was going to do with everything that he gave him. And then, but he was primarily aloof and he was not, uh, he, he, didn't, he didn't speak to man. He wasn't involved with man's life. And, and we just see that's not the case. So there's something here that contrasts Yahweh with false gods. In the ancient world, often a king would build a temple in honor of a god they believed had done them good or that could do them good and they thought if I build him a house what will it do? Well, hopefully he'll come and he'll live in that house and he'll stay a while he'll stay with us and he'll, he'll help us he'll protect us. But Yahweh shows them grace and promises to do to take care of them uh, and, and, and doesn't wait for them to build a temple in fact he says I'll build you a house. A complete opposite way of doing things. And, you know, so many people like to say, "Well, you know, the God of the Old Testament just looks like all the other gods around in the surrounding nations." Not hardly, but 
you got to you got to look and keep your eyes open. Uh, it's different in all sorts of ways. Totally different. Another thing to see here is that if this is merely a physical king that God is is the Lord is uh, promising David, if he's only referring to Solomon and, and David's physical line in, in a Jewish kingdom. Well, first of all, it fails almost immediately because we know, we'll see that when Solomon, after Solomon dies, the kingdom is split. And it never is joined together after that. And, uh, so, uh, it just, uh, fail, would fail immediately. But, if it's Christ, then we see what's really going on here. Only Christ's kingdom will last forever. No, no Jewish kingdom, no physical kingdom, it's going to last forever. The only way this really uh, can be fulfilled is in uh, the, the kingdom that is in the heavens that, that cannot be destroyed. Uh, let's look at a couple of verses here that I think bring some of this stuff out. Jeremiah chapter 32. Let's start reading in verse 36. Jeremiah 32, 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger, in my wrath, in great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they will be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way, and that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make them an everlasting covenant, and I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. And I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in the land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Now, there are those who say, well, this is the Lord speaking to little Jews about bringing them back into the land and establishing a kingdom that will eventually be, of course, you know, they rejected it when Christ came, and so he offered it to them, and they rejected it, so it's coming in the millennial reign. Well, I would say you're half right. This is, this is a, a prophecy of Jeremiah to the Jewish nation that after the Babylonian captivity, at some point, he will bring them back to Jerusalem, which happened, and he did set up a kingdom for the Jews, a kingdom that uh, you know he, he did make a covenant with them, he did put the fear of the God in their hearts, and they do not re- they will not uh, return, or, uh, return from the Lord or turn from the Lord and so forth, but of course when did he do that? Well he did that the Jews came back to the land but Christ came and uh, the kingdom began at Pentecost, and that was a group of Jews, and then that turned into 5,000 Jews that day, that got saved. The Lord kept his promises as he gave them, he regenerated their hearts, he made a new covenant with them. It, 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 he kept his word to the Jews. Now, of course, we know that also part of the prophecy of the Old Testament was that you bring the Gentiles into all that as well. But So we don't believe that the church has replaced the Jews, the, the, the the Jews, every promise is made to the Jews took place to the Jews, but the Gentiles get added in and get to be participants of it. 
but it's all in the gospel, all in Christ. If you're outside of Christ, Jew or Gentile, you've got nothing, right? So I think that's what's going on there. One more here in Zephaniah, and i got to kind of keep moving here. Turn over to Zephaniah. It's a couple of books before Zechariah. Um, Zephaniah chapter 3. Let's read verse, starting in verse 11. On that day, you shall not put, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. And again, both, both cases, you know, he's prophesying to people who uh, are going to be uh, carried off to captivity because of their sin. He says that there's a day coming when you get a, when a, your sin can be forgiven and I'll remember your sins no more. For then I will remove from you your midst the proud, proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty, haughty in my holy mountain. Of course, the kingdom of God is made up of those who have repented, of the, the lowly and the meek. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in the mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejo- uh, rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Of course, again, what we're seeing here are the effects of the gospel. If you read this and say, well, someday there's going to be some kingdom for a, a limited amount of time, a thousand years, and, and all this is just physical, well, okay, but to me it loses its punch. Who cares? But if all this is, if I'm not afraid of my enemies, not because the Lord is, is reigning in Jerusalem and, and the enemies aren't allowed to get in there, so we got peace, I mean, that's all well and good, but if it's about the fact that the Lord has saved my soul, He's forgiven my sins, uh, He's told me that nothing can harm me, that I shall be with Him forever, no, that's the kind of peace that I need to know that I will be in heaven. Not, not that I'm not going to die, not that I'm not going to have trouble, but that I'm safe in Jesus Christ. And I think that's what these words are ultimately talking about. Uh, verse 17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you, rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you without singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, I will save the lame, gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise, and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, then I will restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So again, you know, if you want to say that's a reference to some coming kingdom in the flesh, uh, you know, that's all well and good, I guess. I, I'm going to disagree with you. I just think it limits it. It really takes the teeth out of the, 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 the gospel.
gospel message. Well, then finally here, he makes three promises to David, uh, starting in uh, verses 12 and, uh, yeah, verses, uh, starting in verse 12. First of all, he says death will not annul these promises. Again, this is the Davidic, David, the Davidic covenant is a unilateral, unconditional covenant. The Lord comes to David. It doesn't say, David, here's what I'm going to do for you, but here's what you got to do. Like he did with Israel on Mount Sinai. He said, this is what I'm going to do. Period. Right? And so in verse 12, um, when, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your, your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So David's Death will not annul it. Uh, secondly, we learn in verses 14 and 15, the sin of man will not hinder it, as he talks about how uh, that when uh, the, your, the son commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. So how bad you are, how sinful you are, is not going to stop God's plan. Now, Obviously, there are those who get squeamish here because it's clearly a prophecy about the Lord, and yet it says, when he commits iniquity, uh, I will chasten him. Well, the Lord can't commit iniquity, so what does that mean? Well, it, it's, it's speaking about Solomon. Now, I was reading, I was, not Adam Clark, and, uh, you know, good uh, old uh, commentator. We haven't read a lot of them, but he said, "Oh, this in the he in the Hebrew, this doesn't have to mean that at all. It, it just merely means that he will bear iniquity when he bears iniquity." Well, it's funny that absolutely no translation that I that I have or any other commentator shares that particular opinion. So. I don't know that that's necessarily the case. And I don't think it has to be. Because, you know, look, look, this is still early on in the Old Testament in, in a sense that the, the prophets haven't even started and gotten to run yet. It, the, the, the revelation of God of Jesus Christ is progressing. So here we're seeing it primarily in Solomon. Solomon, we know, is going to turn into an idolater, you know, through his many wives. And the Lord is going to uh, discipline him because of that. And but, but what is it telling us? It's telling us that, uh, that, well, it reminds me that there's someday Jesus is going to bear iniquity. He's not going to commit iniquity, but some, but he's going to have to deal with sin, and he's going to come through it in flying colors. He's not going to stop anything. So we don't have to get tripped up over that. It's just a prophecy about Solomon in types and shadows that we can start filling in and putting the meat on because we have the final revelation of, of you know in the New Testament, right? So we could say, well obviously, you know, not every little detail of every prophecy has to be literally understood. We see what's going on here. We don't have to trip up over all that. So I don't get too excited over people getting excited over that. And then uh, in verse sixteen, we see that time for not exhaust it's gonna uh, we find out of course, it's going to take place far into the future. That God can make a promise about things for thousands of years in the future. It doesn't matter because He's in charge of every detail of everything anyway. So we can—it's uh, not bothering Him. He's, nothing's going to get out of control. 
but it's remarkable when you think about it that David's physical kingdom and his physical line remained intact for so long. The average kingdom, uh, uh, length of other kingdoms was about 250 years. David's, Judah, lasted uh, around 600 years, which was just kind of an amazing thing to consider how small Israel was. And uh, his line remained intact for as long as is necessary, and that is um, for a thousand years until Jesus Christ came. So, uh, again, this is why we say that, that this is all about the Lord, not so much about David. Then starting in verse 18, we noticed something about David's reaction to all this. We didn't read this, but it says David went in before the Lord. And his first thoughts are, Who am I, O Lord, that my house, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Uh, yet this was a small thing in your eyes. In other words, it was an easy thing. And so forth. So, you know, David has a, he doesn't just sit by coldly. God's promises, oh, that's all well and good. Grace humbles us. The fact that God would do this to undeserving sinners has got to humble us. It's got to, it's got to give us patience. And it's, and it's not, that's why Jesus says they shall know you by your love, right? Uh, because if, if, if we're not affected, deeply affected by grace, so that we can be patient with each other, loving with each other, uh, you know, compassionate towards the lost, you know, compassion to some degree towards our enemy, then something is wrong. And it makes you wonder what's going on. And, and, and it's things that, you know, some of us struggle a lot with, and I understand that, but there should be a, the gospel has got to affect us deeply. And if, it, and if you don't, if it doesn't, then you need to confess that before the Lord. And, you, and some of you, that's why we say we got to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves, because I need to reminding myself of that lest I get up in the morning in a complete in, in complete nonsense and start to think more highly of myself than I should. Start to think I deserve something more than I do. Start to uh, elevate myself above somebody else to think myself better than somebody else. It's only when we forget the gospel that we find that we have problems with that. And, and, and it's wrong. And of course we can't be much we can't be very good servants. To be great in the kingdom, right? If we have that kind of attitude. So, as you read through the end of this chapter, you see how David is really amazed at the amazing grace of God. And uh, then, uh, one other thing I'll. Um, it says in verse. One verse here that if you read this, you might say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Verse uh, 19, And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord, for you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. So he, he realizes this is not really about Solomon, but he understands this is talking about somebody later. In fact, Acts 2, Peter makes it very plain that uh, David was prophesying about uh, the Lord, the Messiah. But he says, And this instruction... And this is instruction for mankind, O oh Lord God. And if you read the different translations, that uh, you can tell it's 
kind of difficult uh, to translate. It's a, you're really not really sure what it means. And uh, probably... Uh, it, it might mean that this is how God deals with man. That this is the result of the word given to Adam because the word Adam is translated man there. Uh, this is the law of God concerning mankind. And I think as I was reading all the different things, and you began to see, well, really what, what they're all saying is that this is the main truth that we are destined to before the Lord. This is God's great purpose for mankind. This is it. This is, this is the plan of redemption. This explains everything. I think it's kind of, so this is a, a phrase that perhaps David is relating to, or is referring to there. And then in verses 23 through 24, And who is like your people of Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out for your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. It kind of counts just the amazing grace that Israel received by being chosen in the way that they were. So he defines those the, these people, God's people, by grace, using the two aspects of redemption that we talked about before. God has purchased a people; they have become His. We are redeemed from a cruel enemy, right? And we become the Lord's, but we are redeemed for His possession. We, we, we redeemed from one thing to another. And, and David brings both of those things out. That's a common biblical thing. We've, we've been free from sin, but we haven't been free to sin. We, we now are in bondage to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's just Christianity 101. There are certainly a lot of uh, so-called Christians who, who don't get that, who don't understand it. Uh, you know, certainly the more antinomian idea that, well, we're, uh, once my sins are forgiven, I'm kind of, you know, free to do what I want to do. Well, no, we, we are to be a holy people. So unlike the Mosaic Covenant that was clearly dependent on the faithfulness of the people, the Davidic Covenant, as I mentioned earlier, like the Abrahamic, is dependent totally on the Lord's doing. The Lord comes and he makes promises. He doesn't set any conditions on, on the recipient. The Davidic Covenant is a promise to establish an eternal kingdom through a descendant of David, and to build his work, to and to build in this work a dwelling place for God. So it's not just about a kingdom, but it's about a dwelling place for God. Those two things. Well, okay, we'll stop there. I'll maybe I'll you know, kind of do what I can do today and make uh, use some of this for an introduction uh, that we'll do next week. But any questions? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your uh, word today. Thank you for grace, unmerited grace, Lord, that has saved us and has given us all these promises and uh, said, uh, don't worry, uh, Christ's perfect righteousness is your surety. And Lord, what a wonderful thing that is, how that gives us peace and hope. And uh, we rest in that today. We ask your blessings upon our next service in Jesus' name.